Welcome to UW-Madison's Science Narratives. Short stories, big ideas. This is The Amazing Gaze. I was interested in robots, I was interested in designing robots for humans to use. And uh, one of the places I wanted to start with was a hospital in Pittsburgh. We identified a product called Tug that was a hospital delivery robot. It is a mobile robot that autonomously moves through a hospital's operates doors and elevators, gets to floors, knows where things are, has a map of the environment. Um, you can tell the robot, hey, go to this nurse's station, pick up uh, a blood sample from there, and go to the lab and deliver it. It's designed off of a hospital cart. It's a big, big uh, rectangular shape, and then what they did is that they added a mobile robotic component in the front of the cart, uh, and it tugged the cart. That's where the name comes from. Tugged its deliveries perfectly. The delivery part of it was quite successful. But I can't say that it actually did its job perfectly, because part of the job was that interaction. Uh, the, the, problems that people talked about were mostly social problems. Um, so, so what we concluded was that uh, systems or robotic technologies that are placed in the human environment have to follow the norms of that environment. So we have to design these systems to follow these norms that humans expect. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Yeah, there's sort of random Canadian things here and there in my office. Good. Students nice always know. Like, I'm ready. Yeah. yeah, that was great. Okay, no, oh. Okay, so. okay. I'm Lynn Turkstra. I'm a professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I study communication in adults with acquired brain injuries. When Bill Gay first arrived on campus, he did kind of a vision quest and went around and met different faculty members. And because I study interpersonal behavior, I think someone recommended he talk to me. So one thing that Bill Gay and I discovered right off the bat is that we were both interested in looking at the dynamics of an interaction as it plays out over time. And one of the types of social cues that's really important in, in interactions is cues related to eye gaze. It turns out that humans are very controlled by the eye gaze of other people. I can make you back off a few feet by just looking at you. I can make you feel uncomfortable by looking at you too much. So eye gaze cues are incredibly powerful. What are you looking at? I'm not looking at anything, sir. I'm continuing to organize my files. But you were looking at me. I am sorry if I was disturbing you, sir. I will not look in your direction. Um, imagine your gaze behavior. 
So if you look at literature on gaze, uh, what it'll say is that, well, um, generally more gaze is better. But it won't tell you how much more is, is good. It will tell you that 100% gaze, staring is bad. Right, so it'll, it'll make you look creepy. So this, this is good, right? We know that we shouldn't look at, at 100%, but we don't know what is more gaze, what is a good amount of gaze. Right, so how do I actually turn this qualitative observation into numbers? When we started studying that, what we used to do is count up behaviors that people produced. They looked at the other person 20% of the time or 80% of the time. Um, but it turned out that if you use those kind of average measures, you don't really get a sense of what's going on in the moment of an interaction. Um, so to actually get those numbers, those frequency numbers, um, the way in which I might be changing my gaze, you know, if you start talking about less than 100% gaze, that means that at some point you're not going to be looking at your partner. So what is that point? When does that happen? Um, so we need to actually capture all these variables and answer all these questions to be able to reproduce this behavior. And if you think of human communication, it's so dynamic. You know, it's spontaneous. It changes directions in the middle of a conversation. We, um, we had focus groups of teenagers talking, and we found they changed topics five times a minute. So Bill Gay was, was saying, you know, we're not getting a sense of the real, the spirit of human interaction by just averaging behaviors over time, we need some methods that can look at these moment-to-moment -moment changes in behavior. Yeah, yeah, he can speak. She can speak, I, I would say, I don't know. <laughs> would you like him to stand yeah, or, or me? I just want to make sure he doesn't fall off the table and he has enough space. I'll just watch him. Hello, Sean. How are you doing today? I'm Sean Andrist. I'm a PhD candidate here at University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, and I'm a researcher in the Human-Computer Interaction Lab. Because it, it has a face. I mean, like, I, I say the, the robot arm, I, I say it. No problem, every time. But anytime it has a face and it seems like it has some capacity for thought or interaction, you just instantly feel the desire to personify it, to, to give it some sociality, even though it is, I mean, it's just, it's just a hunk of plastic and metal that's been sitting in the corner for the past year. And, and still, like, I can't stop myself from calling it he or she or, or whatever. So what we did is that we actually um, um, recruited a large number of participants uh, to come into a lab and perform in, in a variety of scenarios. Uh, for example, one participant would be interviewing another, um, or they might be having a conversation about their movie preferences. But then we want to look at, okay, let's look at what the gaze patterns look like. Uh, for example, when someone asked a question, the other person would look away first before answering the question. And this happened very frequently. It's actually a sort of a very, very common pattern that people follow. And what we can get from the data is the frequency at which this happens and also, you know, when people look away, where do they look? 
because you know looking down might have a different meaning than looking up or looking to the side. So let's say that we recreated these behaviors in a robot. How do we know that they are they are good? They are they actually do represent the norms that we want to capture. What are you talking about? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. There are many forms of evaluation we could do. We could do some of them in the computer because we have the baseline human behaviors that we observed. Another way to evaluate is actually have a robot act in the way that we want them to act. Um, and have people interact with it and almost kind of create an experience. Um, so we do all of these types of evaluations and uh, the, the most interesting informative ones are actually when we put people in front of a robot, you know, give them sort of a, a task and have them perform that task with the robot. So my research with this now and, and in general, I'm really interested in the, the social behavior of gaze, whether it has eyes and head, or for the now, it really can just use its head. It's actually the brand name, NAO, so we call them now. It looks like a mini Michelin man without doing product placement. It's a solid gray color. It has articulated joints, but there's no movement in the head. It's just this marshmallow block with two um, LED lights that are eyeballs. Well, so in general, no matter what the gaze behavior is, there's definitely an acclimation period. What's that doing here? Rosie is our new robot maid, George. Good evening, so we, sir. I kind of try to design those into the studies no matter what. So like the first five to ten minutes might be just interacting with it using some baseline behaviors just because at first, you know, it's here's this little three-foot-tall robot talking to me. You kind of need to get used to it. It has a human voice, but it's a recorded voice. It doesn't really have a mouth that the voice comes out of, and nothing about the robot looks really human. But then, when we get into the study part, and so, you know, maybe I'll have the robot using gaze like a human would do, or just staring you straight in the face statically. Uh, doing things correctly, you know, gazing around kind of like, like humans do more comfortably, uh, people seem to warm up even more to the robot in those cases. Often we would find that when the robot follows these norms, there's stronger rapport. Uh, people thought that the robot was more thoughtful. So um, people are, you know, the robot is putting more thought into its responses um, when it's following human norms than when it's showing no behavior or when it's showing behavior uh, that is different from human norms. So they'll feel friendlier towards the robot, they'll feel like the robot is being friendlier towards them. Um, all these nice kind of social outcomes will, will come out of it. Um, so a big question in all research on communication is what defines a successful interaction? So what makes someone a good social communicator and someone else poor? If you have a conversation, what makes it a good conversation? Steve. Steve. Steve.
And the answer is, it's in the eye of the beholder. So it's whatever the other person thinks is good. Two people can have a conversation that doesn't make sense to anybody else. But if it makes sense to them, and they think it's successful, that's success. Success for us is when people um, are mostly positive in their evaluations of the robot. Um, and what we see is that overall, when, when the robot follows human social norms and its behaviors, we see people seeing the robot more positively evaluating uh, them as better collaborators, better agents, um, better communicators, and also in many task measures, uh, people collaborate with them better too. We see people completing tasks faster, more accurately, when the robot follows these kinds of norms. My research is kind of one piece of the overall picture of interacting with robots. So what I would like is to have kind of a module to say, okay, here's this robot, whatever robot you have, you can plug in my research somehow and it will use its gaze appropriately. We've looked at gaze behavior, we've looked at uh, many aspects of speech, linguistic uh, cues, and the alignment of all these behaviors, right? Because when we, when we behave, we actually behave with the full extent of our faculties. You know, we don't just look, just speak. Um, those are sort of deprived forms of communication. You might be talking on the phone, you're not seeing any body language, but you see speech. But in face-to-face -face interaction, things are multimodal. Uh, we show all these behaviors in conjunction, and they might be complementary, they might be redundant, um, but if we can design robots to actually use all of them effectively, uh, we might be actually getting closer and closer to a sort of a really effective form of interaction between humans and robots. Um, so we're learning about ourselves in the process of making robots. This podcast was developed by Doit Academic Technology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Edited by Mark Neufeld and Don Fleshman, with original music by Yoon Hong. Special thanks to Bilge Mutlu, Lynn Turkstra, Sean Andrist, Ali Sape, and Michael Gleischer. Produced for UW Science Narratives, an initiative of the Division of Continuing Studies.